Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome back. Hey, friends. How are we all doing? How are you doing, Dean? I'm doing, I'm doing well. I'm doing very well, you know? It's been, uh, yeah, it's good. Things are good. Life is good always. Good, 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 good. Lots of good. Yeah, what about you? Yeah, good. You know... Kids are getting bigger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess they keep doing that. It does. Yeah, it happens. I've noticed on your Strava lately, you've been going for some longer, faster, faster runs. Yes. You know, the first, it's hard to believe I'm going to say this, the first quarter of this year. Yeah, I know. It's insane. But uh, I felt, I was feeling kind of down on myself because like last year, January, February, March, like we we're crushing some runs. Yes. Like crazy distances, not, well, not crazy, but like consistently long distances just as like, let's meet up. We had a window of time and I think there was one week early January we ran like two half marathons in a week. Like it was just, we were kind of crushing it and then, and then this year just with like busyness and life and all the stuff, it's been just shorter, which is always good. It's fun just to get out regardless. But then in the last couple of weeks here, I feel like I've found a bit of a stride with some with some distance and getting, and that, yeah. getting that groove back. It, yeah, and it feels good. It Dino, feels good. Dino got his groove back. I guess so. Oof. Yeah. I'm excited. Running, I feel like running is just like symbolic for all things in life, you know? Yeah. Should this just become a running podcast? Are we going to alienate all our listeners that aren't runners? That we're, no, we're just going to turn them into runners. Oh, I like that. There's yeah. the positive spin. That's right. Because we're all runners. That's right. You're born to run. Okay, so something that we were just talking about that I really enjoyed, um, and it seems like a simple thought, but I thought we could jam on it for a minute. Sure. This like idea of having filters for our life, and it's mm-hmm. it's maybe obvious, um, but we we're kind of expanding what those filters can be and how that can lead to action, activism, and living, you know, a little more good in your life. So. Right. One for me, which is an obvious one, is being a vegan. I use a vegan filter for my my choices and decisions I make, from the food that I eat to the clothing that I buy to, um, you know, just I use it when I'm purchasing things or participating in things. Um, and it's 
it's a, a pillar for for my decision making. And we were talking about climate change, and and it can be daunting for people, or intimidating, or they're not sure where to start. And I think just like when you become vegan, and this could be for anything. I'm just using veganism as an example. Um, you start to make your life decisions using that filter. So using climate change as the example, you just start to to put on that lens and use it as a filter for your decision making. And yeah. and and that makes you an activist in every decision that you're making, whether it's the food that you're choosing, whether it's the politicians that you're voting for um, at civil or federal or whatever election. Um, to, you know, your transportation choices to the, you know, choosing to buy local or, or whatnot. If you're, I'm an environmentalist and I'm uh, a, a steward for, for the planet, you just put on that filter to all of your decisions and it becomes a language in your decision making. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think it is, it is, uh, maybe a helpful way to frame it is like we're all used to filters and the narcissistic sense of just like yes. how do I make this photo of myself look better <laughs> but like realistically the the important understanding is exactly what you described is like how can I it's like the micro choices that you make to me those are like that's the filter like do I ride my bike or do I take the car do I you know plan my trips so that when I go out somewhere I can be efficient and like hit all the places I need to go in the most efficient way. Like it's simple things, but when you have a filter, you know, that's important, those choices come through that. And, you know, many of us think in terms of like maybe health or wellness and it's like, okay, I want to, I want to be well and live well. So then that filter dictates like, or helps us decide like the things we're going to do and eat and consume Right. I, oh yeah, I don't want to stay out till three in the morning, like drinking, you know, Jager bombs or whatever the kids are drinking these days, because like that doesn't fit with my goal of being like a healthy and and well person. Right. And so I'm, I'm going to like not participate in those things or not do those things because it's not serving my end goal. So when we can start to have those clarity on what those things are, um, the decisions leading there, like our, our, simpler or made more more simply to be like yeah okay i'm just not going to do that because it doesn't serve where i'm going yeah small incremental changes for for large impacts a right? large impact like that's it then that's it when we talk about climate change like that's what we need the most right not everyone being some sort of <laughs> captain planet right he is our hero gonna take pollution down to zero <laughs> that was good captain planet man I but like we just need people to be regular people who are like making choices that help offset the impact of our, our collective living in this kind of very privileged way that we're living right now. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just like how we're, you know, to connect things back to running as we do, you know, if you're training for a marathon, as, as you mentioned, you know, you might, you've got that filter on, you're like, you know, I'm not going to stay up and have 12 beers or three beers or even a beer tonight because you're going to value your sleep and your rest so that you can go out and run the next day or go out, and perform at work the next day or go be a good parent the next day. Whatever it is for you, yeah. Whatever those filters are. So it's kind of like thinking about your your goals and what you want for your life and, and using them as filters for our decision-making. That's right. And it all comes together, hopefully. 
So yeah. we can all be, you know, citizens making small changes that will create big impact collectively. It's true. That's, that's the goal. What's the quote about like a small group of individuals or change the world? Yeah, never, never underestimate the ability of a small group of like radical individuals to change the world or whatever. Radical individuals doing something simple. Something like this. Yeah, it's very yeah. inspiring. It's a yes, good quote. Don't underestimate people doing small things and making big impact. There you go. There's the, Diener. There's quoted, <laughs> quoted by Diener. The least sexy version of that quote, but you get the point. All right. So who do we have this week? Okay. Well, speaking of like being able to kind of accomplish things just through like and amazing things, but just through kind of showing up and living, this conversation kind of has a lot of that in it. And he is a, a very inspiring human being. Heavy dose of inspiration coming your way. Yeah, Swain Tuft. He's uh, spent some time uh, chatting with him today and um, just an amazing dude. Bike rider who got his start out by just like wanting a sense of adventure as a young man and kind of found himself pedaling uh, from, from the Fraser Valley here in BC up the coast and eventually onto some amazing climbs in races you might have heard. Giro d'Italia. Tour de France. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. Amazing. I felt like we were just like kids sitting around a campfire listening to like that cool, you know, that cool kids stories. And you're just like totally enamored with like everything that he or she is saying. Yeah. And um, that was very much the case with Swain. Um, an amazing adventure and storyteller that's truly lived and is living life to the fullest. And, just drew so much inspiration and excitement and, you know, saw the world and through a lens of what's possible, you know, what's having an unlimited belief versus a limited belief. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think surrounding yourself in an echo chamber of, of influence like Swain will create good things for, for, for you and, and those around you. Yeah. It was a, it was a real reminder of like, kind of the importance, almost, I would say, necessity, especially for us in kind of the, the, the Western comfortable world, the necessity to like do something that's really hard mm. and to challenge ourselves, whether it's like physical or mental, but just to really like put ourselves in a position where we can experience like suffering mm-hmm. <laughs> and something that's challenging to see our humanity Right. And to see our ability that's innate in us and, and often lost in kind of the creature comforts of daily life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the lost art of resilience. Yeah. So true. Yeah. Um, yeah. Inspiring conversation. I'll definitely be following Swain. Swaino as uh, his fellow cyclists call that's him. Right. Uh, excited to see uh, the adventures he creates here, here in Nelson, BC. Yeah. As he's, um, you know, taking a new chapter to his life and his adventures through, through tours and, um, you know, some group cycling activities that he's, uh, he's leading. So yeah, we'll have to, we'll throw some, throw some notes up where you can, uh, see his latest and greatest of adventures that he's offering. Definitely. Yeah. So grateful to be able to speak with him via zoom, right? It's, yep. it's, uh, opportunity connects. So while he's up there in Nelson, we're, we're down here. Do you, follow, do you follow? I don't know if you've seen his latest Instagrams too. They're so wild. Like he'll be like uh, cross country skiing and have like he'll be pulling his uh, his kids behind him on like a um, basically like how he pulled his dog up to yeah Alaska as you'll soon learn. He's doing the same with kids now. So good. 
There you go. Well, should we get into it? Let's get into it. Right on. Swain Tufts, everyone. All right. We're super excited for uh, this week's podcast. Uh, we're Zooming live here with a uh, local legend, cycling legend. Uh, the his, his, Your myth is as big as your, uh, you know, your accomplishments, uh, Swain Tufts. Thanks for, thanks for joining us, Swain. Oh, thanks for having me, fellas. Yeah. Super excited to... Uh, you know, have this opportunity to, to sit down and chat. Been a fan of yours, following you in the Pro Peloton. And um, like many have kind of fallen in love with uh, the stories that you've told of, of how you became a pro cyclist and your journey, um, you know, getting to that point. So, you know, I'd love to just kind of sit here as, as a, as a fan and admirer and fellow cyclist and just kind of like have a campfire session and uh you know listen to to some of those stories so maybe we can just kind of start things off with um you know one of your first uh bike trips uh going up you know the 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 roads the wild roads of bc you know seeking adventure uh with you know rickety old bikes and and kind of not knowing where or how but uh you know, having an appetite for adventure and, and an open mind to where that might lead you. Uh, maybe we can, you know, touch on some of those original stories, Alaska, Bella Coola, Mexico, whatever, whatever you're feeling like telling the, the kids around the campfire today. <laughs> well, I think it's probably fair to start with the first one because that was such a shit show. <laughs> um, you know, my passion at that time, I, I dropped out of high school my parents thought I was absolutely nuts and I was into mountain climbing and that's really what brought me to the bike was the this kind of sense of adventure getting out I was just obsessed with mountains and and growing up here on the coast it's just like it's a gold mine for that uh especially when we're looking back 25 plus years ago these untouched valleys going you know just north of anywhere from the Fraser Valley or you know, heading east into the, <clears throat> the Cascade range. So, you know, that was, that was my, my thing. That was what really got my motor going. So I was lucky, I, like, though I dropped out of school, I had jobs. I was, I was working like doing, I did like, there's a period I was doing like three different jobs, <clears throat> pressure washing, uh, garbage trucks and things like this. And then, uh, cleaning up at a gas station and then, working at a butcher shop, cleaning out all the implements after the day was done. So really sweet job. <laughs> um, and I, like I owned a car, you know, so like I was pretty motivated because my, the biggest thing that was driving me was to get out to the mountains and that requires money buying the equipment and, and all that stuff just to exist, you know, was costing money. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, one of the things that started to wear on me was just insurance fuel owning a, a crappy car because i always had this kind of price range of like 500 bucks which as you know can sometimes get you like a gem of a car or just an absolute uh horror show of just constant problems so you know it was just kind of always rolling the dice and spending money for transportation and i got the idea that you know i cycled a little bit as a as a kid as we all do bmx and then you know some some trips with my dad and stuff like that, but nothing, it was nothing big in our lives. And at that time, you know, I knew nothing about bike racing or any, any of that stuff. And, but I just got the idea of 
you know, this idea of traveling by bike was free and it was just relied on you, human power. And, and, uh, so yeah, I, I, um, <clears throat> I bought a crappy 10 speed bike from value village, as you guys probably know, value village offers some, if you're willing to look around for the, the right deals and stuff, you, you can find some, some good stuff in there, <laughs> but I, I knew nothing about bikes. So I, it was just kind of like the first thing that actually the pieces all seemed to be intact and it, the wheels rolled then yeah, thumbs up. That looks good. So I got like an Apollo 10 speed and I think I probably paid like 30 or 40 bucks for it or something like this. And then I welded up a, a trailer because I had my dog and all of my climbing equipment. So the trailer was like, uh, the original one was steel, all angle iron kicking around at my, my dad's shop. He had a big old Lincoln arc welder and uh, yeah, some old BMX wheels and uh, a 45 gallon um, plastic drum you know and i just cut off the the top part of that and then you could just load everything in right and uh so the first trip uh consisted of going up to the chillac valley just as a test run and uh it was it was september right when i started getting this idea so in september in bc we tend to have these awesome indian summers where it's just incredible you know warm i i always find it's like the best time of the year right we have the cool evenings and just bomber weather. So I had this like perfect intro into it. The trip wasn't too far. I did a sweet little climb, camped out, rode back. It was hard, but it was like, yeah, this is awesome. You know, this, I made the right call here. You know, when the weather's good, everything's good, you know? Um, and then, so I got that idea like Bella Coola, you know, and, and the Chilcotins because of just, you know, I just, I, I'm a map guy. So I just, that Chilcotin region just calls out to me. And then just that whole Bella Coola area, it's just wild and untouched and big mountains and everything just bigger and more wild, you know? And uh, I was like, well, I got this bike now. Like what's stopping me? Um, <clears throat> I realized what it cost to, to just travel like that was really nothing. Cause I was buying like rice and potatoes and these kinds of things, just as simple and as cheap as you could possibly go. So I thought, yeah. And of course, no experience in the sense of like, you know, leaving that late in, in uh, the season. So we're looking at like uh, late September, October now, where I decided to take on this trip. And anyways, <clears throat> on this trip, I had just everything that could go wrong on a bike basically uh -huh. went wrong. I, and I, you know, so many times I'd be on the side of the road just trying to figure out the inner workings of a bicycle and like just doing things the hard way. And it was, it was such a fantastic experience. Like looking back now, it's easy, but um, at the time I was just, wow, this is, yeah, just so many things. And it, it was so difficult, but what was crazy is like getting home from that trip. And there's a lot of stories in between. I, I could go on for hours. Um, but the, the thing that stuck out was I came home from this, this trip where everything went wrong. I, I, I ran out, I lost my, my little bag of money, which had no money anyways. Um, I was like the, the, the second half of the trip coming home where I'd lost my money. I started picking up uh, cans on the side of the road um, to, to buy food. So like I'd make it to Williams Lake 
and I had like this, this massive sack of cans attached to the, the trailer. And then I was able to buy some potatoes and whatever. So I was truly living off the land. If you could, uh, you know, say that, um, but yeah, I had just every little thing like uh, up on the high chill Chilcotin plateau weather moved in and, and it gets really cold up there. It's a high, you know, pretty high bench there, probably, you know, maybe a thousand meters. And uh, it's, it gets pretty notoriously cold early season and, uh, you know, just freezing my nuts off at minus 10 and wind and oh, just going, what am I doing? But I came home from that. And I was in love with the bike. And <clears throat> then it became, you know, the, the love for the mountains never, never died, but the love for the, this traveling by bike just grew and grew. And that whole winter, I worked at a horrible job um, at a chain and cable place where we like, basically we were just salvaging old, uh, log boom uh galvanized wire rope <laughs> cutting off the aluminum swages and then you know trying to find the good pieces and oh, it was just the worst kind of stuff but that's what i did with to build up for this alaska alaska trip so i'd you know i'd ride my bike down to port kells in the morning and put in a day shift there and and uh but my mind was just alaska I'm going to alaska as soon as the weather starts to turn good I'm heading off, you know, so that, that just started this whole mindset of, of the beauty of traveling by bike, the freedom that you have. And especially I feel so fortunate to have lived in that time, pre-internet, pre-cell phones, pre all that stuff, because I don't know what I, if I, it would have been as great with all that distraction. I was truly free. I didn't have a bill. I didn't have a credit card. I had a bank account that could accept checks from the places I worked at. That's it. You know, like it, <laughs> when I think of like how life is now, it's far more easy to get sucked into all that distraction and the, and the things that like, I'm not saying these are awful things. It's just that in order to enjoy the freedom that I had at that time, I think for me, it was necessary to not have any of those attachments. And uh, yeah, so I, I, like I said, I, I was just really fortunate to experience at that time and that that time of life, you know? That's amazing. So so let's let's just like recap a little bit because this is like incredible. So you're, when you did this ride up to like Bella Coola, you're what, like 15, 16 years old? No, I dropped out when I was 16 out okay. of high school. And so that would have been, you know, so I climbed for a whole summer and then we hopped trains for a while. And then um, that would have been like 18 years old would have been my first first trip up. Yeah. So 18 years old, you get a bike, you build your own trailer out of steel. Like we're not talking about like some nice light aluminum or carbon. Oh, no. <laughs> this wasn't like a truly. Yeah. You're dry. So you're going to ride from where were you living at the time? No, like the Fraser Valley was kind of home for you. So Langley, you Langley, BC. Yeah. To Bella Coola. I just, as you were kind of telling the story, I was looking it up. It says it's about, 960 kilometers give or take and you set out on this journey how long how long were you riding for like what was what was kind of the how did you break it up and, and get get there well that's the funny that's the funny thing because 
a lot of like those those typical normal things people in life would kind of plan out or try and get a rough idea or prepare for that was never my bag you know like i was just a stubborn no i'll ride i have to ride over 100k each day and i just assumed i could do that based off of no experience like a lot of things i've done in my life like i look back <laughs> at a lot of these stages in my life and i just assumed that i could do them with no real experience and and i will say that's a gift but it's also can be a real hard way to go through life um, fortunately for me, it's been a gift most of the time because I believe that attitude allows you to just push yourself into things that normally you might not if you weren't of that same spirit or whatever. Um, so I just off the bat, I was like, I got to do over 100K. That's always been, I think there's a funny thing where, because I always try and figure out how did I end up racing or how did I end up in the in the world tour of racing, that crazy, like absolute opposite end of the, the spectrum way of living right this kind of type a crazy mindset well that was always a part of touring for me even though i was like yeah free-spirited and like oh blah like enjoying the beauty <laughs> i still had this kind of schedule for myself where i didn't know like where i was going or or where i would make it but it was like within each day i, I had to push myself to my own limit at that time, or else I wasn't satisfied. Mm. And I think that's been a part of my life uh, ever since. And, and I, I don't see it really slowing down much. Um, but to just answer your, your question, like I, I was trying to ride over 100K each day, no chamois, uh, no practice other than riding to work in Port Kells. Um, and it was just that thing like trial by fire. And it all worked out <laughs> i mean there were some days that sucked i remember sitting in like um there's like i don't know if you guys know cash creek yeah um the the highway going up there but there's like it's pretty wide open country and i'd hit this section where it was like blasting headwind wind just like funneling down that valley and you know like even it on a racing bike and like fully you know, kitted up in aero clothing and stuff, you're still pushing. And even if you're super fit, you're still pushing. It's a hard drag there of like 30, 40 K where you just block northerly headwind and it was cold. And I knew nothing about nutrition, anything, right? Like it was just kind of like, well, you have breakfast, like whatever you can have potatoes or rice, or uh, I used to make like almost bannock on fires, you know, like, uh, and, and then you just don't eat until dinner right and it's just like you know like i had no preparation in the sense of like eating all day right so i was bonking like it was my first real bonk and i seriously i thought i was dying you know because it was that bad because it was like a you know it would have been like one or two degrees but this like a crazy wind so like you know when you lose your energy you no longer produce heat and all of those things were kind of hitting me all at once and i remember there was a there was a, a late, um, there was a, like a little roadside stand and I bought, um, I, I basically bought like a dozen corn and I sat on the side of the road, like built a little fire and I was just cooking my corn, boiling the corn. I just sat there and ate like 12 pieces of corn. Like it, and it never tasted so good. Like 
incredible. Like, yeah, yeah. I just like I smashed twelve pieces of corn in this in this like wind with my pot. Just everything just and yeah. And I'll never forget that feeling because like it was such a happy feeling, and I was in such a funny place, you know, like not in a not in a good situation, but everything was okay because now food was coming in and the body was starting to to work again, you know. Um, but yeah, there's just there there were so many things that I just got yeah trial by fire and learned very much the hard way, and I don't know those lessons are. It's funny. I always try and like help younger people nowadays, like, and, and try, and my goal is like to help them avoid the pitfalls and all the things that, but there's part of just being young that you have to do stupid shit as long as you're not too crazy where, and to figure stuff out, you know? And, uh, so yeah, I, I wouldn't change those lessons or those trips for anything. They were worth it all. So that's amazing. Were, were you ever like, where did that, um, that confidence, that courage, that sense of adventure come from, from like, where, did you ever in those moments, uh, you know, where you're freezing or you're bonking, did, were you ever scared or did you just kind of trust that you'd find a way out of these um, adventures and these situations? Yeah. You know, uh, I always think about that. Um, my dad was a big part of that mentality. So my, my dad's Norwegian. He came over to, to BC when he was 25, he just left, like didn't know the language, didn't know anything. And his mentality growing up for us was just like, you don't talk about stuff. You just, you just do, you do yeah. it. And if, if that person can do it, you can do it. Like, you know, he, he taught himself from, from basically not knowing the language, not having any trades, any education, and he became a general contractor that was like highly successful in the whole Fraser Valley area, you know, and he did that all through that kind of mentality. Like everything he did in life, he, he bypassed <laughs> the general way that everyone else does it, uh, you know, and he did it in his own way. And he just always had that belief. Like you just, you go after it. If you, if you want something, if you're going to try and do something, you just, you find the way and you don't, you know, try and lean on others and, and kind of sneak your way in here and there. You just, you work hard and you'll, you're going to figure it out if you want something that bad. And uh, so he always instilled that in my, my brother and I, and it made, it, it it's truly made every decision I had, you know, like in my life, I look back, it's all because of that kind of upbringing. He just, he saw everything differently. You know, if everyone was going this way, he did, he did it in a, in another way that was very successful, you know? And uh, so for me, I always saw that there was a different angle to everything. You, you didn't have to do what everyone else was doing. And uh, yeah. What was the other part to that? that question because there's a yeah were oh. you ever, were you ever in in fear or scared or did you just kind of trust your your instincts and um you know yourself that you'd be able to find a way out of these these scenarios yeah i think dumb luck played a big part in in uh, a lot of the things that, you know because I, I i remember back to a time uh my first trip to alaska i'd gotten really sick um, I'd probably started with a bit of like a viral thing that, 
you know, then became bronchial and riding in the cold. Like my first trip to Alaska, I also left way too early in the spring. I was just too, too raring to go. And when you're down in the, in the Fraser Valley and it's, uh, you know, early April and you get one of those sunny, hot days that we, we get, doesn't mean it's like that up on the, the Cassiar Highway, you know? <laughs> and uh, so once again, I'm getting, yeah, the school of hard knocks and, and I'd uh, gotten like full on, I would, I would think that it was pneumonia that I had. And you know, like when you get to that state, it's really hard to stay warm. Your body's doing this, like you're, you're sweating and then freezing. And, and of course I'm up on, uh, you know, the yellowhead highway that cuts across to, from, uh, Prince George over to, um, Mizzidin Junction, which is the Cassiar highway. I was up in that neck of the woods and it was just cold. And, and I remember I was suffering, like you wouldn't believe, like I, I like, and it's so weird because it wasn't even in my mind to like, just stop the trip, you know, like <laughs> I think back now and I'd just be like, what are you doing, man? Like time to go home. You know, um, but in my head, it was just like, no, we keep got to keep moving. You're, you're, you're going to do this and you'll get through this. And and I remember at nights I would build. So this first trip too, I also did in a way where I wanted to do it in the old fashioned way. Like I didn't have any modern equipment, no synthetic stuff. I was wearing all wool and uh, I would sleep in wool blankets. And well, I did have synthetic stuff because I had a tarp for when it rains. Um, so I was building, I was sleeping under like fir trees and building like a fire on either side of me. And, uh, that trip I learned how to build fires in every condition possible. Cause I was also cooking everything by fire, no stoves. Cause that was just way too high tech. Um, and I remember that this one night where I feel like it was like, I was either going to go downhill really fast and, and, and be really screwed or my body was kicking it and yeah i remember just shivering like like i've never you know you feel it right through your bones it's it's the most it's the worst feeling because you're you're really out in the middle of nowhere like i was sleeping off of the highway but you know those highways at night uh whatever at three in the morning you're sitting there shivering trying to keep these fires going hoping the wind's not gonna blow and then you know light you on fire <laughs> And I remember just thinking like, ah, this can be it. I, like I could die here and no one would probably know for quite some time, you know? And uh, that really hit home, but it's funny because that was the night my body kicked it. And I'll never forget because I was cruising up the Cassiar highway, sun came out. And even though like I had residual stuff from the sickness, it's so weird when you're young, like you're so resilient. I don't know if I would bounce back like that now, <laughs> but I was just like giving her up the Cassiar highway, big smile on my face. This is like a couple of days later, you know? And yeah, it's just, I don't know. That would, that was definitely a moment where I thought, yeah, that could, that could be it, but it didn't imprint the rest of my life. You know, like I wasn't like concerned about, like I still put myself in the same situations like, uh, like an idiot, but, uh, you know, that's, that's what I get excited about in life. <laughs> Sometimes that's what it takes. And what was it like when you, when you made it to Alaska? Like, was that, um, was the destination satisfying or, or was 
kind of the joy in, in the journey of things. Yeah, I think that's where I really learned about that whole the process is is kind of the best part of it, yeah. rather than than the thing that you think you're aiming towards. Um, by that point, you've been on the road so long, you've been going through this, like, in my mind, like the most one of the most beautiful parts of the world, this whole, you know, Pacific Northwest, North, um, you know, going right up to Alaska is just is mind boggling. And I think I'd gotten over this whole aspect of like Alaska being the end all be all. It was what I really saw was that it's in the trip and it was in the day to day stuff. And what I loved again, going back to just what I was touching on before is that the, the freedom that I had at that time, I didn't quite know it. Um, but I look back now, it's so magical. Like, I, like if I was just tired, I would just, you know, if it was a nice day and there's a beautiful creek there and, and a nice little spot, little grassy spot, I'd park the rig down there and, and uh, cook up a little bit of food and read a book for a while or, and sleep because you always needed sleep, you know? And it was just, yeah, it's just a magical time that I like, it's hard to picture myself doing that now, which is, I don't know, like that's, it's kind of sad for me, but at the same time, like my life is just different now, you know? And, uh, I'm, like I said, I'm just really fortunate. <laughs> I had that phase of my life to be so free. I, I could see like a 75 year old Swain once your uh, kids are older and you got time on your hand again, just like, yeah, bring you know, it on. <laughs> yeah. up the Throw couch. the phone in the garbage. and Yeah. Where did Swain go? He's he's heading to Alaska. Yeah. Um, one one story I'd love to hear as well before we kind of get into the the pro peloton or or you know see where the adventure takes us. But in the winter, you were doing equally as wild adventures. Like, weren't you kind of setting up camp um, in the backcountry of the mountains and like basically living in the mountains and backcountry skiing? Yeah, that was. Um... My poor mom. That's all I can say. <laughs> Sorry, mom. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I can ever really, you know, apologize enough for that phase of life. Very confused. You know, uh, when you're that age, 18, 17, it's a weird time for all of us. And I was, I mean, at the same time, I'm glad I was the way I was because those lessons, again, imprinted just fantastic things for the rest of my life. And and dumb luck got me through a lot of things that probably could have been really bad. Um, but I was I was lost. I was just trying to understand who I was. And, and uh, I didn't quite fit in anywhere. Um, you know, I had great friends. I was very lucky to have that, like, good foundation. Um but the mountains were my, my number one thing. And, and I grew up skiing and snowboarding and, and that was the stuff that I put a lot of value in. And, uh, you know, I got the idea one winter to set up, well, first of all, I built a bit of a, a shack, a bit of a hut. And that just kind of sucked because it was just always dealing. Like I had a barrel stove in there and it was just always smoking and, things were always melting as everything was, it was just <laughs> a, a disaster of a, a, of a camp. 
but it, it kind of set me up to figure out how to do things the right way. So this is up in the Chilliwack Valley. Uh, first one was up in Airplane Creek, a pretty nice little area on the Mount Laffington. Excellent, uh, just nice alpine bowls and really good uh, torn stuff. Um, but I, I, it made me save up for a proper outfitter's tent and the right, uh, so I don't know if you guys are familiar with those, but they're big, like uh, freestanding tents, like you build a frame and, and they're, they're, they're quite big. They're like a little house and you get, you get a proper stove in there and it can be minus 20 outside and you, it's like a sauna in there. So <clears throat> yeah, I was doing that in the, in the winters going up for, you know, a couple weeks at a time. And yeah, I was just, again, like, I can't imagine really doing that now. I, I obviously I have other responsibilities, but you know, it's just what a, what a magical time to, uh, to get to do that. Yeah. Like really my days, you know, one of the things you realize when, when you're living like that is, is that, uh, cause people would always ask like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, what, like, what do you do in a day? And you, you go to bed hammered every day. You definitely live with the cycles of the, the sun. And there's so much to do in a day, just getting water, just getting, doing the simple things, keeping warm, drying stuff, making some food. And when you can actually sneak in a little uh, ski tour, snowboard, you're, you're pretty lucky. It's, it's, it's incredible. Like just staying alive up in those places, like when the weather's blasting through, it's just always, always something keeping you busy. So yeah, that was, that was a special time for sure. And that, that's so amazing. So, I mean, we can, well, I think we'll probably circle back to these, these adventures and cause I want to hear all the stories, but you're kind of this like a uh, Huckleberry Finn, Jack Kerouac, Mark Twain kind of adventure, uh, in the you know the Canadian version and the the great you know the great forest the great outdoors and so how did you go from from that to you know the pro peloton how do you go from riding your bike with your dog to Alaska to um, you know riding the Tour de France and the Giro d'Italia and the, the Volta and all all these you know incredible races and you know you had a, you had a long successful career so how did you go from this wild man to uh the professional circuit yeah. <laughs> traded it traded in the heavy trailer for the aerodynamic bike and the <laughs> no yeah. to the nice suits because <laughs> it's not a typical story right i mean like gene and i both love love cycling and um you know a lot of a lot of the european riders that we uh you know look up to it, admire it's it's definitely a different origins for 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 them finding the sport than you know kind of the, the stories that you've shared yeah well first of all i say those guys are incredible because i don't know how they hold the motivation they have to, <laughs> so long you know i i consider myself lucky coming into it so late mm. and getting to have the the career that i had because um i would have never made it as a junior it's just there's no way um <clears throat> It's a big, it's a big, big contrast that life. And I, I, I always, you know, quite often I'd be sitting in the bus somewhere at the tour thinking like, how the hell did I end up here? You know, it was always a question of my, of my life because 
you know, so many things conflict in that life for me. And the, the one thing that I touched on earlier <clears throat> with you guys in one of my previous stories was that I always had this thing of pushing myself. So I needed, a, I needed an, <clears throat> an arena to do that. And <clears throat> cycling kind of allowed that for me. It, it was a thing that, I, and I still always have that thing. I want to be out in nature. I want to be outside all the time. I love, that's where I'm happiest. But there's still that part of me that always wants to be pushing and, and testing yourself, right? And cycling really made that for me. And I didn't know, like, when I was touring all those years, you know, that that was building a base for what I was going to do in the future. But one of the things that happened was <clears throat> I, uh, one of my, so in the winters I used to work and I had this job at a, at a, it was kind of a sports store, like a used sports store, but it had a lot of bikes and uh, the owner was super nice. And he said, yeah, you can, you know, live here. Cause he knew, he knew me very well. He knew what I was up to. And uh, he said, you can live in the shop. So I was, I was living under the stairs kind of, <laughs> and uh, you know, had like a toaster and a little mini fridge in the back there. So pretty, pretty dodgy setup, but um, it was a time where my dad, like my, me and my dad kind of reconnected because uh, during those years when I was just all over the shop, I was, my parents had divorced when I was 15 and I was kind of playing them against each other. Like, because they weren't speaking, I was able to like do all of my wacky trips, kind of live however I wanted. I was working, I was making my own money. So it was easy to kind of tell them a story, which again, sorry, mom and dad. Um, but I was, I was just doing whatever the hell I wanted. And I, I was lucky I had good influences and good friends because uh, I was doing cool stuff. I was basically saving up money to do trips, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's not like um, a teenager, right? Like sneaking around, doing all this like questionable stuff. It's like you're... <laughs> yeah. Maybe. All I wanted to do was get out and, and get up to Mount Judge Highway, you know, if we could build up an expedition, borrow someone's boat, you know, get across Stave Lake. And, and that was like, that's what I was interested in, you know? so yeah um th during this time i had to be at a place all the time for a certain set of hours and my dad used to come down and, and uh we'd hang out and, and uh, he started seeing like how much i was just into biking and and all of that so it was like he because he's european uh coming from that background i didn't realize but my grandfather so my grandfather went to the olympics for a cross-country skiing and uh he also raced bikes and growing up we didn't like my dad didn't really talk about that kind of stuff again he wasn't like the most open person and like always telling stories and all that stuff and yeah it turns out like uh he, you know like cycling was a big part of uh my grandpa's life from norway so anyways my dad saw this in me he saw that like i had a bit of a drive um for the first time I think they they just thought I was totally nuts like and just really no kind of direction in life or or what have you so he started kind of planting it in in my head like 
to, to, to see if we could try like racing, you know, seeing as how I'd been, uh, I was still riding around Langley with my dog and my mountain bike and all that stuff. And so in that, in that, I'd tried a friend's, um, Cannondale had spinergies, you know, back in the day, the, those were like, I tried this bike out. It was insane. Like I just, it just blew me away. Like with the same power that I'd put out to go 20 K an hour with my rig, I'm now going 40 K an hour. And it's just like, that feeling was so addictive. Like it was just, yeah. Cause I'd just been pushing so hard to go so slow um, prior to this. And so that was, that was all it took. I got on a fast bike and then, and then I started like borrowing that bike a few more times and riding up to Mount Baker and these kinds of things and just becoming obsessed with that, like average speeds that you can carry. <laughs> and again, that goes with that weird part of my mentality that has to like compare every previous ride and, and see progression and all that stuff. But it, that's what started. That's what sparked everything for me. And probably that really that time trial side of myself and so through that, we had access to bike parts and all kinds of just random pieces at, at this store. And we started piecing together the jankiest road bike you could imagine, but it did the trick. And, and it's funny to me when I see like young juniors now with like, you know, $2,000 wheel sets and the craziest equipment. It's like, that's great but you don't need that. If you, if you got the raw goods, just whatever, man. Um, but anyways, it was kind of a journey that my, my dad and I started. And, uh, it was, uh, for me, it was, it was some of the best times with my dad because once we figured out that I had any kind of, you know, like <laughs> that I was half decent at it, we, you know, we loaded up and he had a little like crappy S10 Chevy pickup truck, you know, and we drove down Pacific Northwest and, you know, all the way down to New Mexico to do Gila. And we just like, we were camping out in the, in the woods, out in the high desert, you know, while like I was racing against te like teams that were staying in hotels and had soigneurs and all that stuff. We're camping out in the desert, cooking like pasta down by this little Creek, you know, and uh, once again, I wouldn't change that for, for anything. Uh, those were some, some great times with my dad. And uh, yeah, it was just, it was such a different way <laughs> to it. But, you know, it was thanks to my dad that, you know, I, I got that, that drive. I got that, that taste of, of, again, just being in the right arena for that energy that I needed to expend because I did quit for a year uh, later on in my, in my career. And what I realized pretty quickly is that you can't come back to that later in life. This is like a, this is a, a stage of your life that you can't return to. Mm. So if you love it and, and it's something that you, you really want to do, you have to find the things that you truly love about it. Cause there's a lot of things that were like, I was focusing on the negative aspects of that sport at that time. That's what made me, made me stop. Um, yeah. And I just realized you, you have to make the most of those years because you don't come back as a 45 year old man. <laughs> yeah. So again, lucky, lucky turns of life. I, I always 
find it so fascinating these little things that happen along the way of life that are just these crossroads where anything can happen you know so you're you're, you're pushing these um local races uh up and down the coast and having some success and eventually you got discovered by by a pro team is that kind of how it all happened yeah i like i just at every like from from my first races you know i had no idea and again just raw stubborn dummy just go out and ride as hard as you can i like people would tell me about tactics and like how you don't just ride as hard as you can when the gun goes off you know and i'd just be like no that no that doesn't you know i just thought those things didn't apply to me and, and while that sounds really stupid it it's it's part of who i was and it's what allowed me to do everything i did later on because that mentality and i always try and tell young guys it's like when you're racing local stuff and you want like you tell me you want to go to the world tour okay well i'm sorry but there's no tactics here in a, in a local race you have to smash the local race by 10 minutes in order if you think that somehow racing in europe is going to be uh, on par or the same level or more suited to you you know just because you're like oh i can i do longer races or whatever i hear every story but in the end it's like you have to make it so hard on yourself in a local race because the next levels are just that much harder so if you aren't hammering yourself every time you get a chance to race locally you're not excelling so if you're sitting in and trying to figure out how to sneakily win the race you're not excelling you're not like if you are truly wanting to make it to a world tour now if you're like a local guy and you just love racing and you don't have time to training then do every tactic there is in order to win that's awesome but for like a younger guy and i was just lucky i was just too dumb to think like this <laughs> so i just i just went out and if i flatted or my chain broke which was probably 90 percent of the time in the in the first uh opportunities i had to race and then I started figuring things out, but I still had the same mentality. Like I'm doing these races, but I'm going forward. I'm, I'm trying to like better myself all the time in a way that I have to make things so hard on myself. Cause I understood enough to know that like the, the next levels were very difficult. When I got my little taste, I realized how hard it is. So yeah, man. What a story. That's, that's incredible. And just that, just that like uh, ability to kind of recognize now, like what was just your mentality at the time? It wasn't like, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not going to do that stuff. It wasn't like a denial of, Hey, there's tactics and there's strategy and all of this, but it was rather just you being like a hundred percent who you were like, this is a race on a bike. So the only thing I'm going to do is like go as fast and as hard as I can. And all i knew <laughs> like it's so pure and it, it comes back i think to like how you you know there wasn't like you had said before there wasn't a lot of forethought or planning or strategy in the trips it was just like i want to i want to do this i want to go here and like kind of come hell or high water like i'm doing it and so, yeah you know whether it's like like you say kind of like this stubborn like just desire to get things done or it's just like that's how 
you've always operated is like no bs this is the goal this is the prize and this is what i'm going to go do like it's kind of even though the 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 modalities are different like the you showed up the same to the start line of an adventure as you did to the start line of a race right it's it's awesome yeah. i i have a, a funny story now that like we we start talking about that but something <laughs> that that sticks out for me just along those lines was I was working this uh, ridiculous cable and chain job. And I remember they took an interest in me because I could show up on time and I worked. So, you know, that was like, I was already like 90% above the, the rest of the fellow laborers that I was with, you know? So all you had to do is kind of like be friendly show up on time and and work and all of a sudden they're looking at you like this next kind of uh management material you know and uh the you know the the guy who was running the show at the time he'd always be talking to me and asking like what do you want to do with your life and this is like what people have been asking me for years you know like when i was in high school i'd get like because i would be gone for like a week expedition and come back to high school and they'd send you to the counselors and they'd be like, what do you like? Why did you come? Like, what are you doing? What are you going to do with your life, man? Like, and I never had the answer, but the first time I had that answer was <laughs> at this wire rope job. And the, the manager, he's asking me, he's like, you know, you had, we could, you, we could move you up into a really good position here. This is your salary and all that stuff didn't none of it interested me for a second i just told him i'm going to be a bike racer and he just like he's like oh yeah so like have you done it before and 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 i was just like no no but i figured i'd be pretty good at it and that was my answer to him based off of i'd seen the so this is again my ignorance and and just raw stupidity but I'd seen the previous world championships uh, average speed, which was obviously like a, a very mountainous, difficult course, you know, like worlds are insane. And I think they'd average like 35.6 K an hour. And I just over 240 K. And in my mind, I was like, well, I, I can do that. Like based off of, <laughs> you know, because I'd ridden this kind of, fast road bike a few times and and i just deducted in my head that i could do that and that the race consisted of you just starting and going like a time trial not that there was tactics or that they go warp speed on the climb and then rail the descent and then chill out on the flats you know none of that stuff occurred to me it was just in my head i could do this so that's what i was working with so not a lot really <laughs> amazing i love that just as like a fan of the sport, can you just tell us what that experience was like on your first day lining up at the Tour de France and what that kind of that ride was like? Well, maybe it would help if I did the build up to the to the right. tour. Let's build it up. Let's build it up. So that was 2013. And I was going to be the oldest, if I did get selected, I was going to be the oldest ever debutante in the Tour de France because I was 36 at the time. And I'd had a crazy start to the year. I was basically doing every race. And the, the tour that year had an important team time trial, which was my, that was my thing, you know, like that was, 
that it was my passion, but it was also every team time trial, I think up to that point that I was involved in, we won and we had a very good Palmares for team time trial. So I was just kind of under the impression I was going, but you're, you're always on the, on a team, you're always on the chopping block, no matter who you are, unless you're like Cancelaire or one of these guys, you know, um, you're always as good as your last race. And so basically I done all the classics. I did Romandy. Um, I think I, I pulled, you pulled because the, it was so close to the zero that year they pulled me out the last two days so I could get like a couple days of rest and then straight into the zero had a, had a good zero. And then because I wasn't sure of uh, the selection, I did tour Slovenia. I won the prologue in, in Slovenia. So I was like, Oh, for sure. You know, like this, and I was still on the chopping block. So I was like, basically like uh, the week before the tour I was in in Barcelona with my wife and I was I had tickets to fly back to nationals or go to the tour and we're just waiting for the call and I got the call up and so of course then you get to go to the tour de France and yeah like I remember just shitting my pants the 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 first stage you know because there's an energy there that's like no other and this this one also added to the element we were on. Uh, we were on Corsica, the uh, French Mediterranean island there, beautiful. And it was the hundredth edition, and so there's just like so much more, just stuff going on, jets flying over, and just, and it's just it's the tours. Like it's hard to explain because bike races, you know, especially from like growing up in these parts of the Pacific Northwest, you see like everyone's mom and their, you know, sister out there at the feed zone. And then that's it. You know, like, it's like, there's nothing. Right. And, (laughs) and at the tour, it's just like, you'll do like these stages 200 K long. And it's just, you're out on a national highway and it's just lined with people the whole time. And it's just bells and horns and people screaming and, it's just a whole other level and uh yeah and and to top that off i think it was the first stage our bus got stuck under the the start finish or the finish banner and we had a we had a real sprint team there so you know i remember we're coming in it's like 4k out and it's just mayhem on the radio we're trying to line up uh we had matt goss who was trying to go for the the green jersey and you know, there's so much stress in the tour. It's like, okay, bike races are enough stress, right? Any bike race, but in the tour, I, everyone throws out common sense or just typical kind of kindness to others. <laughs> All of those things just get thrown out and it it's, I don't know. It just gets stepped up to a level that I find is, is, is beyond me but anyways no one actually knew what was happening at the finish other than that they were saying they were the directors were trying to say that the finish was going to be a kilometer earlier or something like that but you know when you're running at 60k an hour up against the barrier like and you guys are screaming at you and guys are screaming from behind to move up and ah, go and you just there's a crash and then you know you're skipping along the barrier you don't hear much 
you just know that everyone else is getting that same information and we're all confused. But in typical bike racer fashion, it's like you just go faster, take more risk because you don't know what's going to happen. And sure enough, there's just a massive crash. I remember it was like I started out the first day, massive crash, right? Just totally. And that just sets the tone for like the, you know, you're bandaged up, you're buggered up, you're doing showers and it's just everything's painful. It just... Yeah, the tour was was insane that that first one for me, and it was so many highs in the first like ten days, and then I was just I was hanging on for dear life for for the like the final week. Oh, never suffered like like a, like that in my life, and and it was just surely because I wasn't going to let my first tour de France be a DNF, you know? Yeah, yeah, but yeah, that. The first day is insane. It's just like uh, there's a feeling there. Like you feel the guys because another thing that happens at the tour is that everyone has been preparing for that moment. Everyone who's a cyclist at the world tour, like especially at a certain caliber, their livelihood is based off of making it to that race. Everyone's buzzing. There's like a there's an electricity amongst those people they are all at their peak. There's not a guy there who's kind of like second guessing his form. So it's it's a it's a hell of a thing. Oh man! Did you have a moment? Did you have a moment there to acknowledge that you know you were at the Tour de France, or were you just so immersed in it that you were just in action, and it was hard to like celebrate that victory of you know being there. Man, you know, I'll, that's one thing I touch on, like when when you talk about this, like we won the the Nice team time trial there. That's what I was brought for there. I had one of the most magical days of my life on a bike. You know, those days you still suffer, but you're able to just, you're able to do, most of the time it happens out in some random road training, you know, you feel that awesome. <laughs> I actually got to do it in the thing that I was brought there for. And what you never realized, or I didn't anyways, um was the fact that you never know when you're actually going through some of those the best moments of your life <laughs> you never know because you're so in order to be there you're so wrapped up in the next thing so we're we're already thinking like we got the yellow jersey now and i'm already thinking like oh how can i be of help for the boys tomorrow like what's going to be my job like Immediately, it's just like the next thing, next thing, because that's the nature of that machine, mm. right? And it's the nature of like that career. If you start thinking outside of it is when you start to fall down, you know? And so when you're all in, you're just all in. And you. so I guess what I'm saying is you don't necessarily, you enjoy those moments, but so like peripherally, you, 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 are you're kind of there as like a skeleton of yourself Mm. and i wish now i could like i don't know i i wish i could have enjoyed them more but there was so much wrapped up in what's coming right and i will say i was lucky to be on a team that certainly did celebrate very well a lot of those those things so i was i was surrounded by a great bunch of people because it could be way worse on on other teams but it's just like everyone's nature is different. And, and mine was always like, how am I going to 
survive the next thing? How am I going to provide for the next thing? That's just how I think. And sometimes it sucks because you bypass the, those really important moments that uh, you don't realize could be, you know, some like I look back now and I'm just like, it just seems like a whole other world, whole other place, you know? <clears throat> well, yeah, that's really good. I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot in there in terms of living in the moment, but the pressure uh, of, you know, the, the moment is immediately followed by like, what's next? Like you say, especially in something like the tour where there's all the stages and, you know, different riders depending on successes of the rider before them and all like, it's just, so compounded by the team element and the demand of the tour but owners are like some some takeaways like some some life lessons you know it's not it's not every day someone you get to chat with someone who's like ridden in such a such a high profile environment but like would you say that that you know maybe looking back there's some things that have like imprinted on you or like shaped you from like those movements going forward as being part of of a, a like as a tour rider yeah yeah i think probably from that 2013 experience the biggest take home for me was that i wasn't stopping no matter like i was so fucked i was so like if i if i look at what was going on with my body and everything you know, I think of stage 20, it started with, it was a, one of those short, filthy stages with uh, three, you know, horse category climbs. And basically the first one started kilometer zero. I got dropped, like basically the first part where it went, you know, uphill. <clears throat> and I'm watching the bunch just ride away up these switchbacks. You can see them all the way up the mountain. They're just basically disappearing, you know, and it's like this groups and all that stuff. But I'm, I'm, just one guy i'm bandaged up my body is so like you know when you get the hematomas where you just have fluid packages that's not helping you up the climbs you know but that wasn't it you know like there was just so much i was mentally hurt i was like everything was telling me to just stop i'd had a great i came and did the thing that i was like Therefore, I had a great also time like we had a time trial stage 10 i had a i think i ran like fourth it was, it was a great tour for me up to that, you know, point. I, I, I could have easily just said, no, I don't need to do this anymore. It, like I'd come to do the thing. I'd rode the front for many stages because we had the yellow jersey. Man, it was like an awesome tour. Like I was, I'd done my job, but it was so important to me because I'd committed to that thing. And like, I don't know if I could do that now. I don't know if I could put myself through that pain now of what that day was. And, it, and it, you know, it's like people will say, <laughs> like, it's funny because, like, it is, I always think of, like, what real problems are in the world and, like, what people really have to go into this world. We're lucky where we live and how we grew up this in this beautiful place and the opportunities we have. But there's people that live through very hard things all the time. Um but I feel like that's part of our DNA is that we have to suffer sometimes in order to, to have things be great and to, to like enjoy life and, and be proud of those things. And, you know, for me, a lot of the times in cycling, it wasn't the result or the, 
Jersey or whatever the hell it is that most people are looking at is those days because they define who you are. Mm -hmm. And in my head, I decided that I wasn't stopping and <clears throat> I could have so easily stepped off. Man, there were so many times I was out in the middle of nowhere and through in these valleys, the, the race is gone. The, I'm back with like the broom wagon and like some ambulances. Like they're telling me to just like, what are you doing, man? Like, and I just kept head down, just like, <laughs> you know, just, and I'll never forget. Cause that, you know, that final mountain, I'd kind of gotten some kind of weird second wind or whatever. And I managed to catch the last Gruppetto on the road. And we just made time cut to make it into the Champs Elysees, which was, you know, you think, Oh yeah, I've made it to the Champs, right? It's just a parade. No, no, I got piped on the, on the Champs as well. <laughs> so anyways, my, my pain didn't stop there. You know, like I, as soon as like everyone watches it on TV and it just looks like a criterion. Oh yeah. They're just flying across those cobbles. They're brutal. And that whole drag from the finish line up to the big arc, the triumph is falls flat 2%, 3%. And they're going like 55 K an hour up there. You're, you're like pushing 500 watts just to stay on the wheel sometimes through there when they're really like guys are attacking full gas, you know? So it's, it's no cakewalk. Yeah. Yeah. The, the ride from the, the park all the way to Paris, it's ridiculously slow. When you're in pain, like I was, it's just like, come on, can we just, can we just finish this thing? You know, like, and then you get there and it's just like, whack. And yeah. So yeah, I got through that one. I, I, uh, you know, I was off the back on the Champs-Élysées, but I finished. And uh, tell you what, I was pretty proud of that one. And, and not because of all the stuff that happened in early on for the team and all that stuff. It was the fact that I, I hung on and, and, and really it was that important to me to, to finish up in the right way. Yeah. That's amazing. Can, uh, just kind of hanging out there for a second. Can you kind of, talk about the the aspect of suffering the, the pain cave the suffer fast like i think it's something associated with cycling and something that cyclists get hooked on you know there's a crazy hill that somebody that doesn't cycle would think why would you ever try to go up that thing it's so steep and it never ends but with, with cycling and with your personality specifically like there's there's an attraction to that that pain cave that suffering um can you maybe talk about where you you go when you go into that pain cave and maybe what you've learned um for life as a whole by you know dealing with adversity and suffering and how that kind of that that mindset allows you to do big things in life yeah well look i think that's that's a different one for everyone everyone has a different way around that i think like diving into it a bit later on in life when i maybe understand it a bit better and have a different view on things and maybe a little more open. Cause I don't think I understood it when I was younger. I just did. You just mm -hmm. head down and just, <laughs> and then, you know, as I like you get older, you try and assess things and try and understand things more. And um, I think a big one for me is I always understood the fact that life has definitely become too soft. Mm -hmm. So I always found that, doing things that are hard are really important for 
not only your physical health because we're we we have these genes that are expressed when you do hard things and that's there's a reason for that and when you don't do hard things they get switched off and it's also a big part for me is is that mental health aspect um my day isn't right if i don't um get to do hard things and physically mentally whatever those are really big parts of my life and and they add so much to my life so as far as the pain cave goes i think it has so much to do with just seeing like i like i've always liked to see progression i always like to see like how much more you can go each time and it's just like that ceiling never really stops for me not that i'm some amazing athlete or it's just that like i like to keep pushing that boundary for myself because i know what i did last time and i know that physiology is amazing you can always go a little bit more and it really only has to do with this not so much your legs and all that stuff so starting to understand that relationship between your body and your brain um is when i was probably i was lucky at that started coming at some of my peak years for cycling so i was really able to excel i think in the time trial because of that because i understood that it's really here that is is controlling all of that stuff because your body's in pain like we have these systems set up to not push beyond a certain threshold in your physiology and but the brain can override that and so it just depends how much do you want it and, and i'll never forget in, in the olympics you know like uh back in 2008 i all i kept telling myself you know it was, it was not the right course for me in the time trial and it was hot as hell and it was like all these things that you could be focusing on and i was just like how how much do you want this how like that was the things that just kept going through my head how hard are you going to push yourself and everything was like you can do a bit more everything was this positive kind of thing yeah i was in pain if if i could if i could get away from that positive talk i could focus on how much lactate i was producing and how much it fucking hurt but instead i just kept this kind of tape playing in my head i can push a little more you know and that was you know it was a great day for me <laughs> and uh yeah like those things still stand out for me and give me shivers sometimes when i when i think back to them because they, they're powerful moments and and a lot of that doesn't apply in everyday normal life nowadays but man i'm glad i got to experience that yeah there's that's really that's really important i think to touch on is like that idea like you mentioned earlier too you know when you set out on your first kind of adventure like there was no technology no cell phones no smartphones all this and how like we might say oh that's like it's so much harder uh to do it that way but this idea that like our modern life uh, all of these conveniences are set up to make life easier but actually that's like it's taking away from like the the value that we can have by enduring hard things we're recognizing like, no, like you had said, we have this like genetic predisposition to like face suffering and endure it. And, and kind of our mo modern world is like, no, 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 like use this to avoid it. Or like, if you have this like 
pain, take this pill and avoid the pain. And rather than kind of, and it's interesting that, you know, people like yourself and other, you know, endurance athletes, we look to and we're like, wow, these people are like so unique and so amazing. And, you know, you've said it a couple of times and I hear it consistently from other people. It's like, no, no, I'm like, I'm not some super athlete. <laughs> Whereas everyone else would be like, yes, you are. But it's just like, you've learned to embrace what's hard and not, not deny it. You're sitting there going like, this is painful. This sucks. But at the end of it, it's like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. Like I wouldn't trade it because it teaches you something. It gives you something that you can't get out of life by just kind of like pushing the easy button. Totally. Yeah. It's not always 21 degrees back in the day. No. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Northern, the Northern headwind in. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I got to stay on the theme of storytelling. Um, <laughs> maybe we can ask a few questions like post, um, post pro cycling career. Uh, before we wrap up, but just staying on on this uh, notion of, you know, storytelling and, and hearing these these great tales, um, going back to being a fan of the sport, you know, we're watching it and you're going through these amazing mountains, these amazing scenery, and there's these beautiful colors, and it's just so like picturesque and cinematic. Um, could you just kind of take us through one stage, any stage that might have been your favorite stage that you've ever done and just kind of like give us the perspective because we're seeing it you know the peloton as a whole the scenery as a whole but maybe you could just share you know it doesn't even have to be a stage like just a bike ride that lit you up and um what you kind of experienced on that bike ride Ooh, yeah well there's just so many and, and i have to say like some of the most beautiful stages are, unfor are unfortunately so goddamn hard that <laughs> you can barely see straight. So yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll say that first, but <clears throat> there's a few ones that stand out over the years and, and uh, really they all come from the zero. The zero okay. in my mind is, is the hardest and most beautiful race. So it really carries that whole notion of being cross-eyed and being in one of the most you know unesco world heritage site at the same time <laughs> um the dolomites are are something that i'm just in love with that part of the world uh northern italy and generally is uh you know alps and dolomites are just beautiful but a stage that stands out for me was uh, uh would have been the Twenty fourteen Giro, I believe. Uh, we were doing the Stelvio and the Gavia and and like yeah, all the big all the big dogs and the race. You know, the the Giro runs into this issue every year. It's in it's in May, and every year the organizers, it's this big stress about the passes. Oh, we're going to have to plow the passes and like the talk you're down in Southern Italy and it's 35 degrees sweating your nuts off and everyone's talking about the snow and the passes. And you're just like, ah, every year it's the same talk, you know? And, and, uh, anyhow, we're, we're on the stage. I can't remember which mountain town you're standing in. It's one degrees pissing rain. 
and we have to climb, uh, you know, close to a thousand meters out of this valley, the first climb of the day, straight out of the blocks. And so one degree, pissing rain. And the organizers telling us that it's not snowing up there. It's, uh, it's still raining and just light dusting over the, the top. And, you know, bike racers are, are some people that will never stand together if they sniff an opportunity. So there's a lot of guys who are just shitting themselves on that, that start line. But there's a lot of guys going, you know what? Everyone here is totally buckled, can't do it, or is afraid of this stage. You know, this is my opportunity. And if you're a climber and, and you can handle the cold, then it certainly is. But I remember this stage started out and, and you know, there was like, this was still in the day when there was a bit of a union amongst we had some older guys who, when they yelled, it meant something. Nowadays, the young guys, they don't care. They, you can yell all you want. They just give you the middle finger. And, but back in the day, when certain guys yelled, it meant something. And there was a bit of control to the race. And so basically, what the riders decided was that we were going to ride the first climb tempo. No one was going to do anything. Because otherwise, the race would just be carnage. So amazingly enough everyone you know the the older guys the bigger guys are all at the front just and they're like seriously they're slamming guys into the ditch who are trying you know because there's there's continental italian teams that get the wild card for that race and it's everything for them to be on the television in a breakaway so unfortunately for those guys it's like their director's like i don't care what they're saying you know you go you go you know and these guys are getting slammed in the ditch by some sprinter, you know, that has like 20 kilos on them and everyone's just yelling. And, and it's weird because there's this energy, right? Like it, the pace is, is being controlled, but it kind of ramps up through aggression because the guys at the front are like, they have to steer over here to take this guy into the ditch. And, and you're going up like a little mountain pass road. Right. And, it, it, and now it's snowing. It's just dumping snow. And you're just like that fucking organizer, you know, like same story all the time. And then uh, a Russian bloke finally gets through on through some janky ditch, you know, and he's gone. And now the race is just exploded. And, and as a guy like myself and at that time, because again, it was another really um, heavy front week. We'd won the team time trial there. We'd won a bunch of stages. Everyone got sick. That was the year I was just me and Michael Hepburn finished. So there's just two of us at the end. Um, but anyways, the race went totally nuts. And when you're a guy like me, you're like, all I can do is just settle into a pace and hope for the best. And man, it was so crazy. You, you're going up over this Stelvio and <clears throat> some guys were just, they were stuck in the race mode. So they didn't change. So it's snowing. It's, there's snow on the roads and they just keep going in shorts and a Jersey. And I remember I got up to the top and I'm like, I don't care how long it takes cars there. I just did like a full kit change jackets, everything. And you do this descent and you're seeing the guys who didn't make that decision down in the Valley. And they're just like, they're, they're ghosts of themselves shaking. You know, when guys get the hypothermic shakes, and just randomly, like, so they're trying to ride along the pedal pedal, and then you just see them, and they're just doing the, 
like where they're like nearly shaking off the bike and they can't, they can't go, they can't move, they can't excel themselves forward. And you're riding by and you're not feeling great. You're cold and you're, you're totally buggered, but just that clothing change made the whole difference. Right. And it just made such an imprint on my life of like the, how cycling is still this crazy sport where, you know, a lot of sports, they, it rains and they cancel the thing and they, you know, it's a big ordeal and, Oh, there's some wind. Yeah. Okay. We, we cancel and cycling is like, that's when people really want to watch it when it's just to the absolute extreme. And there's part of me that like being in that environment as a racer, you're like, okay, well we need to look after our guys and like, <laughs> you don't want anyone dying, but I still love that aspect about cycling is that it's, it's hardcore. Like you have to be ready for the elements. You know, I think of like a Milan San Remo where it started snowing up over the, I can't remember the name of the, the pass before you drop over into the Mediterranean, but you know, it's just, it's got that wild element to it that I just love. I, I, I love the, the fact that it like has to do also with your body being able to handle the elements. And, uh, I don't know. I don't think there's a lot of sports like that anymore in, in that, in that sense. Like if we're talking team sports, televised, all those, those same factors involved, right? There's a lot of awesome, hardcore, extreme sports that guys do way crazier stuff. No question about it, but it just has that blend of like, yeah, you just got to be ready for everything. And, and especially in Italy, you just got to be ready for everything. So that's a long story around <laughs> a stage that really made an impression on me, but that's like a little bit of the elements that happened within one day of this Euro, you know? Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. You often don't, you often don't get those like insights, right? You might see it or hear a little bit from a post race interview or something, but like, that's, that's a really cool kind of, you could just imagine the the energy, like you said, in that, in that peloton like watching and seeing people try to sneak through and then when one guy makes it like all hell breaks loose and away you go like that is incredible and yeah a suffer fest like freezing cold going up like that's yeah <laughs> yeah and you would never you would never like that part isn't televised right that you they the organizers try and keep that down the fact that there was a rider's kind of call on the the actual safety of their race, right? They try and keep that hush hush. So you, you know, if you would just watch that stage, you would just see like it was a track, like a triathlon at the end, and you'd see the same usual players, the guys who were going for that stage and handled the cold, and you would just be like, oh yeah, it was a looked like a pretty hard day, <laughs> without knowing any of the context. It's it's man. The guys who came out of that are pretty scarred for life. And I know most of the, the guys that I still talk to the, to this day are just like, oh, stage 14, man. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. I felt like I was, I was there. So <laughs> I'm grateful. <laughs> well, should we talk a little bit before we wrap up just about, um, you know, transitioning out of pro cycling and, and what, uh, what life looks like for you now and kind of the adventures that you're seeking and the challenges that you have, uh, you know, post pro cycling. Sure. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm gonna say, you know, transitions, uh, it's a tricky one. Yeah. Um, you, you spent your 
last 20 years uh, focused on this all-consuming thing. And while it's given you great uh, skills in, in so many weird ways that like would you know like apply to so many other parts of your life but it's hard to define because there's no real you know script or anything like that um no matter how prepared you are for it i don't think you're ever that prepared for for what that transition is and and what stopping something like that sport is so i consider myself very lucky in saying that um you know, I have a family, I have, you know, two kids that are awesome. And that takes a lot of your time and your, and your, uh, focus. Um, we were living in Andorra up until yeah, last year and, uh, through like with all the pandemic stuff, we just figured out it's time to get back to family. And, and so we made our way back cause that was always the plan. And, uh, but that was, I don't remember, like, we moved internationally and then we moved again here to Nelson, BC. And uh, I don't, I don't wish moving twice, especially internationally on anyone. It's uh, wow. Well, for us, it was just, it was overwhelming. And uh, especially when you've made a life in Europe and all that stuff. So yeah, uh, we're finally settled here in, in Nelson and I've been doing some projects, you know, here and there. Uh, I, I love riding. I still love it. anything to do with touring or adventure, gravel biking. I, I love every bike, road, mountain, doesn't matter, whatever it is, track bikes will even ride, but, um, that's always a part of my life, but just exploring in general, like I love ski touring, all those things that I used to do, I can do right from the house here. You know, just yesterday I was up, there's a famous traverse here, ski tour and traverse the Bonington range. And it's, I can go right from the house. I go, you know, put the skis on and, and I can go as long as you like. So, so the best skiing I've done in my life right there. So I feel very lucky to make this move. And our, we have a cabin on our property that uh, I'm working on restoring. And uh, the goal will be to get people up riding. We, we live right on the, on our back part of our property is the great Northern rail trail. It goes from Nelson to Salmo and then connects all the other valleys. And so there's just a ton of gravel riding here, ton of stuff to explore. And then as far as the ski touring goes, it's like incredible. The cross country ski area is just 2k down the, down the way. Um, whitewater ski area is just another 5k up the road. So yeah, I, I love doing stuff and I love uh, getting people out. So, you know, I'm not going to go into all the details of what I want to do because I'm more of like, I want, I want to get it going and then we can discuss that maybe some other time, but Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I know it's a process and, and uh, I got a lot of things to kind of do in between. So yeah, I'm working away at that and, and uh Yeah. Do you still get the same sense of freedom and adventure uh, going on a bike ride or, or ski touring now that you did when you first uh, you know, started up to Alaska with your dog and your rickety old mountain bike? The, the fascination of the mountains and exploring has never changed. It's just the amount of time I have. Mm. And I'm going to tell you, when I was a younger man, I didn't understand the commodity of time. Mm. I didn't understand how great that was to just have this notion of never ending time. 
And, and when you're younger, you just don't understand that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and now I really do. And uh, it's, you know, you have kids and you have other things going on and that clock just gets accelerated. Mm-hmm. So yeah, capitalize on, on your time and also, you know, love time because it's, yeah, the, the life is short and uh, yeah, make the most of this time on this planet. <laughs> that is the truth. And now being a father, you know, you said sorry to your mom and dad like a dozen times during this podcast for all of the wild adventures you have. How do you, how are you raising your kids to have that same sense of adventure, but also like, you know, entrust them that they're going to be safe and, and, uh, you know, get home in one piece. Like what, what is that like being on the other side of the, the conversation now? Ah, yeah, tricky one. I think one of the things I realized was that you can't control any outcome. You can't control anyone. Uh, kids, I thought, were a process of the environment you expose them to and the people you expose them to and the parenting you did. And that is so far from the reality. <laughs> when they come out, they just bang. That's who they are. And uh, so you don't have a lot of control over that the things you do have control over are the things you expose them to and the, the ethics and morals and the things you, you can instill in them and, and, and kind of show them in life. And I just realized like, I don't have any, you know, kind of, there's no, there's nothing that I, I want for them more than to just like, I was a, a bit of an odd duck when I was a young man, I probably still am. Yeah. That's not far, but I want them to be who they are and I want them to have a passion for something. And I want them to just love something so much that it's easy to not go down the shitty path because you care so much about something else in your life. And if I can instill that in them, then awesome. That's, that's all I can hope for. There's no thing I want them to do or like something that I'll be upset with if they choose to do. I want them to be whoever the hell they are. But if they can just be psyched about something in life and be passionate about something in life and love something so much that they're not going to harm themselves in any other way, you know, whether mentally or physically, then that's for me, it's job done. Mm. That's so cool. I love that. Gina's got two young girls and I've got two young boys. So uh, ah, yeah, that resonates deeply. Just kind of, kind of hearing that. So thank you. Yeah. Well, well Gina, nice. do you have, do you have any other questions or should we uh, wrap it up with a couple random, random rapid fires before we, uh, you know, send Swain off to his, his, his boys and his family? Yeah, let's do, let's do our random, random rapid fire. And, uh, I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll sneak in sneak in a few a few goodies there. So, okay, you want to start off, or do you want me to kick things off? Well, you can kick us off if you want. Okay, let's see. I was just writing that down a few while we we're chatting. You know, you've traveled the world, you've biked in a lot of places. Uh, we're kind of still stuck in pandemic mode here, but once um, you know we can go explore again. Uh, what's on your list? Where would you like to go adventure that you maybe haven't gone to or you want to return to next? 
Oh, so many awesome places. Uh, but I, I have to say, I can't get enough of BC. So like, yeah. I haven't seen everything in BC. So I'm pretty content here for a while. I spent a lifetime of traveling. So one of the things you start to understand is that, um, yeah, we, we're in a pretty awesome place. In saying that, I miss I miss the Pyrenees. I miss Southern France. Uh, some of my, some of the best days of my life have been on a bike, uh, just cruising around that countryside. So, and then I'm going to say uh, Japan's always up there and uh, South America, Bolivia, Peru. Uh, the list could go on and on. It's, I, I love everywhere. I think everywhere has something special going for it. You know, well, as long as you can open your eyes to that. Absolutely. I'll be waiting for like the seven mesh documentary of you biking from here to Bolivia or Peru or something. Yeah. Like, Another 18 years when the kids are full grown, maybe. Yeah. yeah. We'll be, uh, Just uh, hold yourself a trailer and bring them along. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. That might, that might happen. <laughs> right. Yeah. There is a cool, uh, I think you posted on your Instagram. It, it's a cool little, uh, beautifully shot video in partnership with Seven Mesh, I think. And you're riding through Manning. Yeah, it's about like yeah. how did you have like some of your childhood adventures, and it's just cool seeing that, and then like hearing these stories. Be like, oh yeah, it gives like that even deeper context. My dad always took us up into Manning Park on these epic hikes, and I was just like, my brother is five years older, so from than me, so it was like always up to like his level of what he was capable of. So I was just hanging on for dear life, and yeah, a lot of good memories there. Right. So I read or listened to that you're, whenever you get a chance, you would jump in the you know the cold streams or the lakes or the ocean, and you're into the cold water immersion. Uh, would make you feel good, uh, would help with the recovery. What are a couple of um, couple of things you do to take care of care of your health, take care of your body? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I back in the day, like when I was professional, I, I focused a lot more on that. Now that uh, the time, because I, I love all that stuff, but it takes time. And, and in those days, I had nothing but time to obsess about recovery and training like you know you'd have eight hours 10 hours some days dedicated just to yourself and training you know and now it's like i'm pretty psyched when i can get up for a couple hours ski tour and there's not a lot of time for recovery stuff you know and, <laughs> but in saying that i i feel like you got to respect your body so in the morning i always i still try and get up and and do yoga and some breathing and i still always respect the cold the cold is always something that I'm drawn to and it's not you know nowadays it's not so much about recovery and all that stuff because i really don't care that much i obviously i want to feel good but like in those days i was obsessed about like these minor things that could just give you a bit more right you know i'd be in in the giro sitting out in some creek and the dolomites just you know and that was man it was more of like a ritual it was more of a thing that also added so much to my life. And uh, I'd say that that's what it is now as well, is that it's just challenging, doing things that don't feel great all the time. So like testing, because a lot of times in the morning, you're like, I don't want to go sit in a cold creek, you know, like that's, that's not top priority. So then that's when you got to do that stuff. Because it's just, 
it's going against those voices that are always making things a little softer. Mm. You hitting up the cold creeks in the in the Nelson winters? Yeah, yeah. We we got the big creek out back, so that's yeah. awesome. I love that. So are there any, you, you mentioned this a little bit, are there, are there any like uh, daily or like weekly rhythms or rituals that are kind of like must haves for you, whether it's like something you do, yeah, like a, like a practice every morning or something that you, once a week, I need this, but something that's like a, t- a touch point for you. Yeah. So like I said, uh, yoga and, and breath work are, are pretty crucial just to like, uh, when I don't do them for a period, I know. So that's my biggest indicator to just respect that as try and make it as daily as possible. And then I'm lucky. Like I, I believe environment is everything. So the outside. And so that is a daily thing. Um, if I don't have that just recently, I had to do like a course. Uh, I had last time I sat inside for the entire day, would have been back in high school and I felt like that was a prison and I did a course, something I was into and I had to sit inside for the entire day. I was absolutely destroyed. I, 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 I can't do it. I don't know how people do it. So I've created a life, unfortunately, where I have to be outside all the time. <laughs> so simple things like that are beyond me, but uh, you know, that's just how it is. <laughs> Well, big good. problem big problems i know <laughs> yeah but it's good to know it's good to know what you need right yeah yeah uh what was the first time you uh train hopped what was that like where did you go friggin awesome we were uh we had this horrible job working uh salvaging railway ties so we were stacking sorting and stacking railway ties so like we we'd show up at this site out in the middle of nowhere just outside of revelstoke actually me and my friend uh, Ivan and there'd be like a pile a kilometer long of just railway ties about 10 feet high and we had to like stack in bundles of 25 and you grade them you know and we were just going nuts with this job like it wasn't even good money you know like it was just it was a job and we needed cash to to climb for the, we were basically going to work, you know, like we would do like two week stints and then, and then bugger off. And, and we were outside of town by 20 K. Right. And we were at this, this yard out in this, you know, basically the start of the Rockies there and beautiful, beautiful scenery, but there's just nothing, but it was a big switch yard and trains would come and, you know, the coal trains and the grain trains would pull over for the, the 48s, like the, the container trains, the high priority trains that have to rip through, they don't stop for anything. Those guys. And we realized always the coal and the grain trains were just slow and they basically stopped at every friggin' switch yard. So we're like, well, this will stop in Revelstoke, right? No need to drive into town and uh, get our groceries. Let's, let's have a little adventure. So then, you know, first time you hop on the train and you know, you're, it's, you know, it's kind of, you feel like, Oh, this is like a hobo, you know, (laughs) which we essentially were. I mean, we were living in a tent and doing the worst job ever. So um, from there, it was just like this thing of, again, it's like, it's like the first time you realize you can travel on a bike. It's like this free thing that goes all over the place. And, and uh, 
once we started to figure out the system, you know, we were, it, it was just, it became addictive. Right. And the beautiful thing of a train is like, especially like, you know, roughly on a map, this is a CN train. It goes this way. The CP does a different route, blah, blah, blah. And you just are kind of at the mercy of them. And I have stories from the train hopping days that I could go on and on about, but like, again, dumb luck got me, us through a lot of special moments, but geez, what a, what a fun part of life, you know, that again, just total freedom. Yeah. Like no plan, no, no goal to get anywhere other than to go somewhere and just, yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> so good. So of these epic adventures you've ridden, you know, rode your bike uh, as, as a young man up to Bella Coola and then obviously the Alaska journey, sleeping kind of off the side of the highway, whatever. Can you, can you think of a person that really stands out to you? Maybe someone you met uh, along the way? I'm sure there were many, but is there one person, one story that kind of you could, you could share that is like, oh, this was a really unique encounter? You're right. There was many, but I think, I'll just say the first one that pops up was this uh, Japanese guy that had started down in Tierra del Fuego and Argentina and was basically on the same path as me heading up to Alaska, which just blew my mind. Cause I was like, here I am thinking like, yeah, you know, just this pioneer, just trekking across the lands, you know, and here's this guy, he was dialed. Like he was just so, well equipped so like set up properly and and such a rad dude like he it was so funny because i was so i kind of i had friends who were part of the punk scene in vancouver back in the day and i had all these little uh, do you remember zines like where guys would just like write it was almost like blogs but like you know in the cool? paper form right yeah. guys would just like go to print shops and print them up and my friend Ivan had given me a bunch before this trip. And, you know, those were the days of like cassette tapes. I would just be playing like the same. Ivan would make me mix tapes, you know, and I'd just be playing them over and over again. But anyways, I, I had like a couple of great zines that I would just read over and over again because they were light and just funny and good stories in there. And, and uh, I, I gave these to him and I would just hear my, because like we, we traveled together for a while and uh, he was taking a different route into the Yukon. He was going up north to Northwest ter Territories first, right? So we, had, we split ways. But uh, I would just hear him laughing his ass off in the tent, like reading these things, because he'd never been exposed to, I guess, that kind of culture. And it just kind of blew his mind. And, and uh, yeah, just, I mean, the people you would meet on the road was just incredible. I have so many great memories. It was like, I would say, yeah, 98% positive. One other quick story, another great interaction. I was trying to get home from my first trip in Alaska and I was totally blown. I was up on like the Yukon, British Columbia border, coming back on the Cassia Highway, gravel, big, big rolly terrain, you know, like two, three kilometer climbs, like just that low gray, just rolly, bonked out of my mind. I'm, I'm low on money, low on food, like not eating well. I was probably the lightest I've ever been in my life. And just, you know, when you're just a ghost of yourself, you, you, your brain is not working. You just, you're riding. And all I can think about is getting home and like eating real food, you know? And, uh, you know, 
Cassio Highway, there's no traffic. There's nothing. There's just nothing out there other than like trucks will go by, some oil trucks or some logging trucks. And just randomly this, on one of these rises, this uh, white Cadillac towing a U-Haul trailer goes ripping by. It had tech, Texas plates. And I'm like, oh, that's weird. It, I, nothing really occurred to me, you know, I just keep riding, riding. And then like on the next riser, that car's parked there on the side of the road. And, and this big, huge guy gets out and he's just like, what the hell are you doing out here? And I was like, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm just, I rode up to Alaska and now I'm trying to get back to the BC he's like you're crazy and so he's going on about his story he drove from Texas he always wanted to see Alaska and he's he's like you know in the trailer I got plenty of food for you you know and, and uh he he was telling me how basically he thought there was no stores like as soon as he got out of BC like it was just so wild that there was this so he prepared and basically never used any of it because it was you know every <laughs> So anyways, he opens up the back of the U-Haul and it's just like a Costco store in there. And he, he just says, take what you need. And I'm just like, I just can't believe my eyes, you know? And I remember the first thing I grabbed was this big, um, you know, those Welch's grape juice bottle, like big plastic. <laughs> I just like, and I just like slammed, you know, probably like two gallons right in front of me. He's just like, holy shit. He's looking at me like I was totally nuts, you know? And I, I tried to fit so much stuff because I had my dog still too, right? So I'm like stacking like these cubes of like processed food and trying to figure out how to like, basically I got home from the Yukon border on, on this guy's tab and uh, what a rad dude to, you know, just so, so unexpected, so random and so timely. Like life is just funny, you know, you do something long enough and you're stubborn enough, things just happen sometimes, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's so amazing. Um, you mentioned earlier on, like, uh, you know, the the privilege and of, of being young and just having time and just pulling aside and, and reading a book, spending the day reading a book and having a nap or a sleep. Are there any books or documentaries that have, you know, really lit you up along your way or inspired you um, to be the person that you are that, Maybe you've gifted them to friends or you've uh, circled back to them. Yeah. Good question. Um, you know, George Orwell, I was such a fan of in those days. Um, and, you know, originally I think we're all exposed to like 1984 as like uh, sometimes in high school or something like that. But I found like so much of the works where he like immersed himself in things and wrote about it, like down and out in Paris and London. And um homage to Catalonia. I found like those were such fascinating books because he truly like lived the life instead of like just writing a fictional story. Right. He, he, he lived those things. And I, I don't know, like at that time, it just fascinated me. And I, I, uh, yeah, I just love that style. Uh, immersing yourself in the Spanish civil war to see how fucked up it was. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, it's funny having lived there later on in life. Um, it makes a lot of sense when you read that story, like the, it explains a lot about the Catalan and the Spanish relationship still to this day, you see it so clearly. And I just, I don't know. I, 
stuff like that really hit home for me. Um, I could probably go down a list, but I'll just say those ones really stood out. Joe Drogwell, yeah. Okay, Dino, I've got one more. Do you have any any other before we have a closing question? Go for it, and then we'll we'll close it out. But, uh, you just mentioned like being part of the, you know, your friends were in the punk scene, listening to punk music growing up. You know, we love music. We're runners and cyclists, and you know, we're always charged by good tunes uh, when we need that extra push. Is there, um, you know, if you're you're stuck on a uh, a Peloton loop for you know the rest of your life and <laughs> <laughs> could only listen to one one band or one song or one playlist what would you uh what would you be listening to <laughs> oh that's funny because i've come so like i don't know life you're just all, I, i've always been all over the shop with music I, I i love all kinds of music that has when you can feel their soul involved when you can feel yeah. passion involved in it so that's all that really matters for me when it comes to music but in saying that, like, I don't really listen to me. Like when I'm doing activities nowadays, I listen to podcasts because I, I, I like to learn and I like to hear people discuss things. And, and I, I just think podcasts have changed my yeah. life. And I think they're changing the world in the sense of just sharing these great long conversations amongst really intelligent people that you would never normally be exposed to. So that's kind of the, the first thing, but in music now it's so funny like i'm listening to bob marley basically all the time and nice. it's it, it's so funny because i just find like it's positive energy all the time and it's like the there's something to that music for me that it's just like it's just so good and i don't need music to create any other emotion other than just like yeah life is good and enjoy this life <laughs> nice. so that's kind of that's it for me that's all i need what podcast are you regularly listening to? You have some faves? It's a crazy time right now. There's a lot of stuff out there. Um, yeah. Man, yeah. I, I yeah, I, I'm a big fan of like basically people who are open to all kinds of discussions. And I, and I think that's the whole key right now is to, I think it's so weird how things are being controlled a lot. And I think that's the beauty of podcasts is the fact that we can have those free form conversations and hopefully not be restricted, you know? And um, so, yeah, I'm going to say like Jordan Peterson, uh, Joe Rogan is, is uh, I mean, he has a lot of crazy guests, but he also has a lot of very interesting guests. Um, and I find, I just, I really like that long form conversation. Uh, what else? Uh, Breaking Points with Crystal and Sagar. I don't know if you're familiar with those two, but they're like, they've kind of broke away from like Fox Media and started like, it's, it's American stuff, but I find like a lot of stuff that happens in America really affects us. Um, and it's interesting to understand what's going on there because they, well, they cover everything that's going on in the world, but they aren't from mainstream cable media, which I find has one message all the time. And, you know, there, there's just so much cool stuff out there. My friend Mitch Docker with Life in the Peloton, always a big fan okay. of that. He's a great uh, So that's how, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I could go on and on, but uh, yeah, I'd say right now when I'm thinking about it, those are kind of the, the main, nice. main ones, yeah. All right, do you know you want to you bring her home, buddy?
Yeah, sounds good. So along along those lines, like talking about podcasts and conversations, like obviously that's what we are doing here. And and Zach and I, uh, in creating this podcast, like our intention behind it was to uh, inspire people through conversation to uh, recognize within themselves the power to do something never thought they could do or to be just a, a better version of themselves. And so with that, we kind of landed on this name a little more good knowing that like we wanted to see that and foster that and create that in the world. But we always like to hear from our guests. Like, what does that mean to you? A little more good. I think for me, it hits the the point where like something I've always told myself in life, it always gets better. And so that the fact that you should always believe it gets better. Like we go through rough times as humans. There's always going to be crazy stuff happening in a, in a given life and some real down, downward, you know, down moments. Um, and you always have to keep in the back of your mind, life always gets better. And, and it's solely up to you, like how you want to structure that. And to, to always think that someone else is in, in charge of that, or like someone is against you or someone's like, no, it, it comes down to you. Obviously, it's certain things happen in life that are bad luck and, and so on and so forth. But it's your perspective of how you see those things. And that's been the biggest thing for me is I don't take things personally. It's like you have control over the things that you, you do with yourself. So that's all you can focus on. So how do you do a little more good? Yeah, you every day you're trying to adjust things a little bit better and and yeah it, you know when you're a parent you have to always think about that because you're just that thing that they're looking to for <laughs> that's their kind of mirror into the rest of the world right is how you behave and so yeah i think it's a great it's a great title and and it's a great thing to reflect upon right on man thank you swain that's awesome that yeah, enjoyed it. Thanks for making time for us. Uh, your legend uh, is is so cool to be able to connect and hear some of those tales. And you know, we'd love to have you back on in the future to tell more stories. And uh, you know, we can talk about some of the adventures that you're working on, leading. Uh, you know, with your with your cycling business and all that. But uh, yeah, just wanted to express uh, gratitude for you uh, making for making time and uh, sharing some of those tales with us today. Oh, it's awesome. I enjoyed it. All right. Well, hopefully one day we can connect on uh, two wheels together and uh, hit some hills here in BC or, or some nice. gravel trails and uh, we can uh, pick up the stories from there. Yeah. Awesome. Right on, man. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Swing. Thank you, guys. All right. All right. Are you feeling ready to go for a bike ride or run, run across Canada or Something. hop on a train or? Yeah. The train hopping, like that's so cool. I just, I mean, I, you, not an endorsement, not allowed. Don't do it. But yep. how cool! <laughs> I know. <laughs> I totally. Oh, what a, it just feels like. It feels like something out of like a, you know, mid-century novel that you would read. Like, oh, hundred percent. The train cars and yeah, exploring exploring communities through. You know, if, if you listen to this podcast and you are a author. Or no publisher, oh or write scripts for movies. Like this guy's life should be a book or a movie or both. Yeah, 
it's so it's like it's so unlikely and yet so i mean in some ways it just like it the storyline just follows like and so you're like of, of course of course this would happen like, yeah. of course he would end up riding in the tour like oh my gosh <laughs> So wild. And some of the stories that he shared, like kind of the, like when you asked about the day in the life or like kind of a behind the scenes moment and just like that, you know, sharing about that one climb that was kind of like not, it's not part of the reality that most people would ever see or experience. Just so cool. I I was chatting with some cyclist friends and they were like, uh, for, for those Vancouver or Canadian listeners to understand his space in the sport, they were like, he's like the Trevor Linden of cycling. Yeah. And for those that don't know, Trevor Linden's like a hero in Vancouver yeah. and in Canada for his heroics in hockey. Yeah. And hockey's a, a athletic language that uh, maybe we understand more than cycling, but yeah. Swain is like the Trevor Linden of cycling. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Legend. Definitely, definitely. It was really fun fun to to go the distance with him on this one. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, we hope you enjoyed that one. we got more adventures coming up in uh-huh. upcoming episodes. Um, be sure to share this with, with a friend or two. You know, if you enjoyed it, we appreciate any reviews, likes, subscriptions, you know, whatever. Throw it up on your social media. Tell your your mom, tell your auntie, (laughs) tell your uncle, tell your neighbor. That's right. If you know anyone who rides bikes, you want to share this episode with them, that's for sure. Or if you know anyone that should be riding bikes. It's true. Share it up. Yeah. All right. Well, we're, uh, we're super grateful for all of you listening in and being a part of this community. This, this uh, collection of goodness. We're so, we're so grateful for all of you. And of course, we're grateful for uh, the opportunity to host this podcast and bring it to you from the unceded territory of the uh, Coast Salish, Musqueam and Salish people. Grateful for this land that we, uh, we occupy, really, and so that we can, we can be here and, and bringing this goodness on that. It's always important just to, to remember to give thanks and acknowledge where we are. Thanks, guys. We'll see you all next week. Yes. Peace.